This podcast has been brought to you by the Physiological Society. Hello and welcome to Let's Get Physiological. The podcast where we explore some of the fascinating ins and outs of the science of life. Today we're going to be talking about space. Not content on simply exploring our own planet, us humans have long been fascinated with what's out there. And over the past few years, our attention has turned to the red planet, Mars. But is a trip to Mars physiologically possible? What are the effects of a low gravity environment on the human body? And what can we do to stay healthy in space? To answer all these questions and more, we'll be talking to physiologist and NASA astronaut Jim Powellzek, team leader for human and robotic exploration at the European Space Agency, Jennifer Norton, and Colleen Dean from the University of Exeter whose fascinating research has sent over 36,000 worms into space. I'm Amy Warnock. And I'm Emily Wilde. Now, let's get physiological. In 1961, cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin was the first person to ever enter space. His flight lasted 108 minutes, and he circled the Earth for a little more than one orbit in the Soviet Union's Vostok spacecraft. Almost 60 years and hundreds of space missions later, humans are now able to spend longer in space than ever before. But could we live in space? We spoke to Jennifer Noan, team leader for human and robotic exploration at the European Space Agency, about the future plans for space exploration. You may have heard in the media that uh, we have been utilizing the International Space Station, our human outpost in space, for more than uh, two decades now. We will continue to make use of the International Space Station. It's an amazing research platform, but uh, we already have our eyes set on uh, other destinations. Uh, We want to go back to the moon to live and stay there. Um, And we want to use moon or the knowledge that we gain from moon to uh, even go uh, further. Uh, Our ultimate goal is to be able to safely and sustainably go to Mars. So we might have a new moon base in the not-so-distant future. But us humans weren't made for a low-gravity or microgravity environment. So what are the main challenges that humans face while living in space? As you might imagine, space is uh, quite a hostile environment. Uh, Humans were not made to live and survive in space. Um, So there are a couple of risks and challenges that we need to address before sending uh, crews, um, human crews, Uh, into deep space, and that is what we're addressing with our program. So we are addressing the main risk of radiation, isolation and confinement, but also, of course, microgravity. So what is the effect of microgravity and all the other risks on the human body, and what can we do to make um, a uh, long-duration exploration mission to Moon or Mars or uh, anywhere in deep space a safe reality? Our science community is very busy looking into what happens to the human body and also to the crew as a group uh, when they are in space for extended periods of time. Um, So they are looking at the effects of microgravity on the muscle and bone system. They're looking at energy consumption. They're looking at things like how does uh, reaction time, how does the vestibular system react when it's exposed to microgravity or the space environment in general for extended periods of time. So extended periods of time in space can cause our muscles and bones to become weaker over time. But does going into deep space beyond the Earth's magnetic field pose any additional risks? 
The risks and challenges do not uh, really change with distance, but they change uh, or they become more risky uh, for a long duration exploration mission the longer the mission takes. Um, so it's really not uh, the distance that matters. It doesn't really matter to the human body where, whether we are uh, on moon for extended periods of time or whether we are on Mars. But it is really the, uh, the length of the journey and uh, of the stay on the planetary surface that makes the difference. So the longer we're in space, the more challenging it is for our physiology. To dig a little deeper into the effects of space travel on our muscles, we spoke to Colleen Dean, a researcher from the University of Exeter. So firstly, what happens to our muscles during spaceflight? Spaceflight gives us this really extreme environment and it causes many, many negative health adaptations. But a, a primary biological change associated with spaceflight is this decrease in, in muscle health, which um, I'm referring to as, as muscle size, so how big our muscles are, and also muscle function, so how well our muscles um, can move. So typically during spaceflight, there is a, a decline in muscle function, so you lose muscle mass and muscle size. And typically, the longer duration uh, of your spaceflight, then the greater those declines can be. Um, and we know that a major function of our muscles, both on Earth and in space, is to enable movement. So, for example, when you get up in the morning, get out of bed or go for a run, and they're also critical to producing energy from the foods we eat. So we have inside our muscles the mitochondria, which can actually convert those foods into ATP, so the energy that we use for things like movement. So both muscle mass and muscle size decrease when humans spend time in space. And so what are the problems associated with this? In spaceflight, when there's this loss of muscle size and muscle function, this can reduce astronauts' uh, mobility and their health once they return back to Earth. So they have to undergo things like intensive rehab. Um, but it can also impair their, their performance in emergency situations in flight. So muscle loss during spaceflight is a, a real kind of major impediment, I guess, to spaceflight exploration. So some of the um, spaceflight-induced changes in muscle, they can actually be so extreme that they are equivalent to ageing 40 years in a single year long spaceflight. So it's really quite drastic. And in terms of numbers, um, so muscle mass can decline by about 20% during spaceflight. And this can really depend on, on the muscle that you're interested in, in looking at. Um, but it also can have quite a wide variation between individuals as well. So one individual might lose more than another, say, for example. And then there's also the, the loss of muscle strength. So this actually occurs at a much more rapid rate than muscle mass. Um, so in some individuals, it can decline by about 40%. And this is really quite critical when we think about moving beyond. So if we thought about missions to Mars, if, if you know astronauts lose this amount of muscle strength, it might really impede their ability to explore the planet and also manage abnormal landing. So um, in summary, I guess muscle mass uh, declines quite rapidly in space. So in order to investigate the effects of spaceflight on our muscles, Colleen actually studies worms. So why worms? At first you might think that there are no similarities between worms and humans. So for context, when I say worms, I'm referring to C. elegans. And these are tiny microscopic worms, which were originally found in a rubbish heap actually in Bristol. And they are now used worldwide for all types of research. So going back to kind of like the similarities between the two, it's, it's really interesting that they have uh, muscles and they have a gut and nerves and a circulatory system. And in order 
for sea elegans to move around, they convert their food into energy. So kind of just like we do as humans. And 80% of their instructions, which build a worm, so the genes, so we have genes, they have genes, about 80% of them are similar to humans. So this makes them a really ideal model for studying human aging and disease and also in, in the, the context of, of spaceflight. Um, and these sea elegans have been sent to space for, for many, many years to try and help us understand what happens to the body during spaceflight. And what's really quite incredible is that when they are in space, they are able to grow um, and they're also able to have babies. And just like humans, when they're exposed to radiation uh, during space, they also exhibit health problems. So again, kind of contributing towards the fact that they're quite a good model for us. So whilst microscopic worms might not be the first thing that springs to mind when you think about creatures who are genetically similar to us, they do in fact provide a great model for human ageing and muscle loss. So what happens to these worms when they spend time in space and how can they help humans on Earth? These worms and the and humans also show similar similar sorry uh, molecular changes in space, which contribute to the molecules in the muscles that help us move, but also the molecules in the muscles that affect our ability to use energy. And these molecular changes are also seen in humans on Earth in situations of things like aging, disease, and bed rest. So if we can understand uh, what molecular changes occur in worms during spaceflight, which can act as this model of accelerated aging, if we think about muscle ages about 40 years in a, a single year of spaceflight, then this might tell us why muscle can decline during aging and disease on Earth. And hopefully and ultimately this might help us improve treatments for diseases on Earth, such as diabetes, and it might help us uh, kind of live healthier uh, and longer lives. So what we did along this lines in, in 2018, we actually conducted the first UK-led experiment to the International Space Station. And during this, we actually sent 36,000 of these worms, of these C. elegans, uh, to space to try and understand the effects of spaceflight on these molecules uh, within the muscle that help the muscles move and help the muscles use energy. But currently, we're, we are analysing these and we hope to have the results soon. So currently there's a lot of research being done to investigate the effects of muscle loss. But what do astronauts currently do to help prevent muscle deterioration in space? A key countermeasure that astronauts engage with on the space station to slow the rate of muscle decline is, is exercise. So on average, they exercise for about two hours a day. Um, but there can actually be logistical challenges with this that some sometimes people don't realise. So, for example, they might be allocated a, a time of two to two and a half hours, but actually they've got to also take into account the time to set up the machine, clean the machine, put down the machine. But on average, they kind of exercise for about two hours and they primarily engage with resistance exercise um, and also endurance exercise. So there's the machine called the Advanced Resistance Exercise Device. So this is where they can actually use it to resist weights. And this can help promote uh, muscle building, or it does on Earth at least. And in spaceflight, it's been shown that this, or engaging with the ARED, can actually slow the rate of muscle uh, decline to about 7%. So it can actually reduce the losses in muscle strength to by about 7%. So it, this shows us that these measures are somewhat effective. So they can slow muscle decline, but they don't actually fully prevent it. Uh, in terms of endurance exercise, they can use the treadmill and the bike, so they can do runs and, and cycling, and it's been known that people have run marathons in space, such as Tim Peak. And these are really used to help prevent the cardiovascular deconditioning, which astronauts see are, are seen to have in space. This doesn't necessarily actually prevent the loss of muscle mass, the endurance types of exercise, but are nonetheless still quite important for other kind of space-related alterations uh, on the body. Um, again, but due to the size of these types of machines going forward, you're going to have to think about things that are actually more feasible for kind of smaller, more compact, lightweight space-like capsules. So I think a key thing to, to kind of take away from all of this in terms of the interventions is that 
exercise in space, it's, it's not fully effective for actually completely negating the effects of space flight on muscle loss. So it, it's really important that we continue to test and devise effective countermeasures in space, such as exercise. But it's also really important that we try to determine the underlying mechanisms that are responsible for space flight induced muscle loss. So now it's time for Physiology in Film. So this is the part of the show where we explore some of the physiology behind the blockbusters. So the film I've chosen to talk about is The Martian. Nice. Yep. Saw this a couple of years ago. Yeah, I really enjoyed it, actually. I don't know about you. Yeah, I really liked it. Um, So this is directed by Ridley Scott and stars Matt Damon. And this film actually prides itself on being as scientifically accurate as possible. Um, So there's so much I could talk about in this film. But obviously, we want to focus specifically on a physiological aspect. Yeah. So a quick plot summary. During a manned mission to Mars, astronaut Mark Watney, or Matt Damon, is presumed dead after a fierce storm and is left behind by his crew. But it turns out that Watney has actually survived and finds himself stranded alone on Mars. Which that is actual nightmare. It actually just terrifying. Yeah. Um, so he only has meagre supplies and he must draw on his ingenuity, wit and spirit to subsist and find a way to signal to Earth that he is alive. So essentially, the first big problem, well, there's lots of problems he runs into, but one of the big problems is food. So he calculates he's going to have to survive for about four years until the next manned mission comes to Mars. Okay. So that's quite a long time. That's quite a lot of food. Um, And the NASA rations that they provided for the astronauts will not last him that long. Yeah. Being a botanist, however, he manages to use some potatoes that they brought up for Thanksgiving to start his own potato crop. Mm. So potatoes are great. I don't know about you. They're my favourite food. Yeah, potatoes <laughs> in all their forms. Exactly. But what I want to know is, could he really live off just potatoes Ooh. for an extended period of time? Okay. So as I said, he needs to survive for four years until the next man mission to Mars. Um, so could he really survive for that long? Well, potatoes are really high in vitamin C. No scurvy. Woohoo. Yep. Uh, They're high in potassium, magnesium, iodine, and some B vitamins. So they do actually have a lot of vitamins. But if Watney were to eat only potatoes and had no multivitamin supplement, within a year, he could develop a host of symptoms. Night blindness from lack of vitamin A, rickets from lack of vitamin D, nerve damage from lack of vitamin E, easy bruising from lack of vitamin K, weak bones from lack of calcium, and a weak heart and deadly Keshan disease from lack of selenium. Also, potatoes have nearly no fat, which is another essential nutrient. And I should just say a quick thank you to Christopher Vanjek, who wrote a great article on life science where I got a lot of this information from. So, if we're talking four years on only potatoes, Mark Watney would not survive. In fact, no single vegetable would suffice for long-term survival because no plant product offers vitamin B12, which is crucial for brain and nervous system functioning. But Mark Watney does have some rations, uh, which was designed to last a six crew mission for, I don't know, a few weeks. And he figures out that if he rations these, they will last him for about 400 souls. A soul is like a a Martian day and it's Mm -hmm. just over an Earth day. Mm -hmm. Um, So he does have other rations. So presumably those rations are high in these essential vitamins. So he is Mm -hmm. getting those. And in the end... He actually only spends 568 Martian souls on Mars before he gets rescued because his crew come back for him. Spoiler. 
Oh, spoiler alert. Um, so that's about 578 Earth days, about a year and seven months. Okay, so not the four years. So he not was the four thinking. years. Okay. And he's got the other rations. So actually, probably would have been fine with just a few potatoes. Wow. Or doing his diet. So as far as I can tell, physiologically possible. And in fact, a man called Andrew Taylor uh, did eat nothing but potatoes for a year. And he's fine. <laughs> we hope. <laughs> yeah. And I see a kind of potato theme emerging from you. Well, what can um, I say? If you go back to, was it episode three, I think? We talk about a study looking at crisp crunchiness. I just, I just love all potatoes. About the potato. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so now it's time for physiology, true or false. So this is the part of the show where we try and debunk some common physiological myths or find out whether they're actually true. Okay, so um, maybe this can't be classed as a kind of common myth, but true or false, astronauts do not snore in space. Don't know if this is something you've ever no. considered or thought of before. No, absolutely not. Um, true, they don't snore. <laughs> Yes, you're completely oh. right. Um, back, backed up by science as well. Um, the microgravity environment reduces snoring. Wow. Yep. So this finding was reported by a group of scientists in 2001 who published a paper called Microgravity Reduces Sleep Disordered Breathing in Humans. So Elliot and her colleagues studied 77 recordings from five healthy participants before their space flight, during either a 16 or a nine day space shuttle mission, and then when they had landed safely back on Earth again. So they listened to all of those 77 recordings. And can we just stop, take a minute and imagine listening to 77 recordings of people sleeping. Oh my goodness. That's quite a tedious task, it isn't is it? a bit, isn't it? Because you can't yeah. even listen to music while you're no. doing it. You've got no. to, you're literally just listening to breathing. And you have to listen, you know, for the duration of it. You can't just chop and change. Oh, you can't do speed it no, up. No, because you have to record how long they snore for in a night. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So they reported a 55% decrease in what's called the apnea hyponia index which measures the severity of sleep apnea, which is when somebody has pauses in breathing during sleep. And importantly, for my true or false, this was accompanied by a virtual elimination of snoring. Wow, yeah. that's amazing. So it fell from around 16% of total sleep time pre-flight to just 0.5%, half a percent in flight. That's incredible. Yeah. Uh, but then this then returned to pre-fight snoring levels once they returned to Oh, us. so it won't cure your snoring forever. Won't cure your snoring forever. So why is this? Well, this respiratory system is greatly influenced by the force of gravity. When we're lying down on Earth, gravity pulls the tongue and soft tissues in the rear of your mouth backwards, causing the upper airway size to decrease and the resistance to increase. So if your airway is kind of partially blocked mm -hmm. or obstructed, you get these tissues kind of vibrating as air kind of flows past right, them. Okay. Um, and that kind of creates the like snoring sound that we hear. Um, but in a microgravity environment or low gravity environment, the tongue and jaw do not fall back into the throat. So there's less obstruction in the airway leading to this reduced or completely eliminated snoring that we see. That's incredible. Yeah. So there you go. If you want someone to stop snoring, keeping you awake, send them, send to, them space. to space. Uh, 
Earlier, we heard about the film The Martian. But let's say we set out for Mars. How long would it take us to get there? And what would it be like to live on Mars? We spoke to Jim Pawelzek, NASA astronaut and physiologist at Penn State University, to tell us more. So the big challenge for Mars really is its distance. So depending on where the position of the moon and Mars is, it can be as much as a thousand times further away from the Earth than the moon is. So that's a considerable hurdle to overcome. What that means is that the outbound leg, depending on the form of propulsion we use and the orbital mechanics, could take on the range of six to nine months. And of course, there's a return trip and a stay on the Martian surface that could be as long as the Earth year or even a little bit longer. So we anticipate that a Mars mission would be something on the order of two and a half years off of our planet and in a different gravitational environment. That's an extraordinary challenge to physiology. Every system is going to be impacted. And so we really need to extend that, that operating window, if you will, extend the envelope before we're ready to move and set foot on Mars. Humans moving to Mars is going to be a really interesting concept, and so colonization is going to look very different. So Mars for us right now is really a dead planet. And by a dead planet, what we mean is that its core is no longer molten. So when you have a rotating molten core that has a lot of metals, that creates a gravitational field, and that also creates a magnetic field that protects you from high energy radiation. Mars is a smaller planet than Earth. So once about four billion years ago, when it cooled enough that its core solidified, it lost its magnetic field. Now it suddenly doesn't have that shield and it's subjected to the solar wind and it continues to bombard the atmosphere and strip away ions. So Mars is constantly streaming ions of gas. As a result of that, it's lost most of its atmosphere. The Martian atmosphere is very, very thin. It's less than a half a percent of what we see here on Earth and it's completely different. It's 95% carbon dioxide. So those humans, as they begin to land and stay on Mars for a long period of time, are going to encounter a very hostile environment in terms of gas composition. It will be extremely cold. It will also be a very energetic environment in terms of the ions that are showering the surface. So what we're going to have a desperate need for is well-protected structures that shield humans from the atmosphere. There's really no technology available to us that will ever allow us to restore a Martian atmosphere. So it will always be a very, very hostile world. So it seems Mars isn't the most hospitable of landscapes for us humans in terms of the atmosphere. But do we know how this atmosphere might affect our physiology? So here we are. We now land on Mars. We're in a gravitational field that is three-eighths that of Earth. There is no place on Earth where we can go where there's a three-eighths G room. So this world of fractional gravitational biology is almost an unknown at this point how that's going to affect the physiology of, of people, plants, animals, we just don't know. So a lot of forward work needs to be done. The outbound leg and the inbound leg, that six to nine month transit time, will actually be in a microgravity or near zero G environment. And so the best simulation of that we have on Earth is when we put people horizontally in bed and we do that for months or even years at a time. 
People who are in those conditions, they end up having a skeletal mass and a bone mass that is something on the order of about half of what we see for a typical ambulatory human being. So what we learn from this spaceflight adaptation as we study how this loss of bone mineral occurs, how this loss of muscle mass occurs, at a rate that's 10 to 15 times greater than we see for postmenopausal women, it, it relates to not only that population, but anybody who is chronically bedridden or has any kind of wasting disease. So long-duration spaceflight might be on the horizon, but there's clearly a lot more that needs to be done to keep astronauts safe and healthy in space. Finally, we asked Jim if he had always wanted to become an astronaut. Yeah, so, you know, I'm a, I'm a kid who grew up in the 1960s, so everybody wanted to be an astronaut. Everybody wanted to go to space. I actually was really excited as a kid about entomology, so I was that, that, that kid who was always flipping over rocks and what kind of bugs were under there. So as I worked more and more into the extreme physiology realm, obviously spaceflight came back again. So um, I started out as an investigator on a space mission in 1998, the Neuralab Space Shuttle mission. And as that developed, it became clear that there was a need for investigators to be on board the spacecraft during the mission. So me and my colleague, Jay Bucky, were selected as payload specialist astronauts. So I got to bring it all together doing physiology in low Earth orbit. Right, so now it's time for, oh my God, I can't believe it's a research study, but it actually is. So this is the part of the show where we explore some of the weird and wonderful physiological studies. Now, I know I say this at the beginning of a lot of my segments, <laughs> but... Is it tenuous? It's tenuous at best. It really is. <laughs> um, so this is all about the link between locusts, Star Wars, and autonomous vehicles. I... I... I, it sounds like one of those game shows where you have to find the missing link, and I don't know what that is. <laughs> well, I'll tell you. So this research has been done by Dr. Claire Rind. So she's a biologist and robotics expert at the University of Newcastle. Uh, and she's involved in a big European consortium, which involves the Volvo Car Corporation. I'm sure you've heard of a Volvo. I have, yeah. <laughs> Good family car. What, what, what are Volvos kind of famous for? Um, always having their lights on. Possibly, I don't know. Um, being a family car. Yeah, so safety. Safety is kind of the, the thing safety. along with this. Okay. So yeah. Volvos like pride themselves on being safe. So Volvo's guiding principle has always been safety. Uh, in 2008, they actually stated the following vision. By 2020, nobody shall be seriously injured or killed in a new Volvo. Wow. Yeah. So they're obviously quite into doing a lot of research into how they can make their cars safer. And so Claire Rind is interested in creating a collision avoidance system for cars. So this is where the locusts come in, okay? Yeah, <laughs> Bear yeah. with me. And where, does, where does space come in? <laughs> yeah, as I said, it was tenuous, okay? <laughs> so locusts have fairly simple eyes and brains, but they manage to fly in really dense swarms of millions without bumping into each other. So Claire Ryan was hoping that by understanding how locusts manage this feat, she could design a robotic system based on this neural machinery. Wow. Still no space yet, but it's coming. <laughs> so locusts have a special neuron called the descending contralateral movement detector. Catchy. Um, I know, right? <laughs> and so this neuron responds preferentially to looming objects. So that's objects moving straight towards the locust. For example, on-screen spaceships. <laughs> so... 
Locusts were shown an edited version of Star Wars in which the final Death Star battle scenes were repeated over and over again. No. Yes. No. Yes. They showed <laughs> Star Wars films to locusts. They did. And they recorded this DCMD, the Descending Contralateral Movement Detector Neuron, to find out about how it responds to looming objects. That's absolutely brilliant. So when an Empire fighter or the Millennium Falcon seemed to hurtle towards a locust, its detectors sent out signals to make them sweep away. And so the insect avoidance signaling systems were unraveled by showing them Star Wars. Wow. So now researchers are designing an electronic circuit to mimic this signaling behavior. Um, and they've actually fitted this into a small robot. And this robot can avoid collisions thanks to with, this. With, uh... with Millennium Falcon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So now they're hoping to build this sort of system into cars so that we can have collision avoidance cars. That's amazing. So, I mean, I said it was tenuous, but... But it's great. Locusts watch Star Wars. Yep. Cars don't crash. Perfect, perfect link. Love it. <laughs> Isn't it great? <laughs> well, that's it from us and this month's episode on space. Today we heard from Jennifer Noan about the plans for setting up a new base on the moon and one day on Mars. We also heard from Colleen Dean about the effects of spaceflight on our muscles and how studying what happens to worms in space could help the astronauts of the future. And lastly, we heard from Jim Powelzek about the physiological challenges of getting to and living on Mars. We hope you enjoyed this episode and if you did, don't forget to subscribe and obviously tell all your friends. I've been Amy Warnock and I've been Emily Wilde and we've been getting physiological. This podcast has been brought to you by the Physiological Society.